As you know, one of the ways the Lord Jesus is described or pictured in Scripture is as a shepherd. It's probably one of the favorite depictions of him. All the way back to Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd. He is a shepherd. As a shepherd, he watches out for his sheep and seeks to protect his sheep. The sheep are often attacked by wolves. In fact, one of the most, the most common themes of the New Testament is warning against false doctrine and false teachers. False doctrine, false teachers attack the sheep. Sheep are often attacked by wolves. However, it's not only the sheep that are attacked by wolves. The shepherd himself was attacked by wolves. And one of those occasions is recorded in John chapter 7. So please turn there with me to the fourth gospel account, the gospel of John chapter 7. Our text will be verses 14 through 36. So please follow along in whatever translation of Scripture you have with you as I read these verses for us. John 7 (coughs) verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look! He speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, Whom you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. 
And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? To really appreciate this chapter and this story we just read, we must keep in mind what has taken place prior to this in the Gospel of John. Because what happened earlier is alluded to right here in this interaction with Jesus or uh, involving Jesus and the Jewish leaders of his day. Back in chapter 5, Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. This healing took place in Jerusalem on the Sabbath day during the time of a great feast. That infuriated the Jewish leaders. And I'm not even sure if that's a strong enough term, infuriated them. In fact, chapter 5, verse 18 tells us that from that point on, the Jewish leaders sought how they might kill Jesus. As we move into chapter 7, we see Jesus in Jerusalem again during the time of a great feast. This time it is the Feast of Tabernacles. So depending on how you figure the chronology of John's gospel, about a year to a year and a half has passed since Jesus healed the paralyzed man in chapter 5. But let me assure you, the Jewish leaders haven't forgotten it. Their anger just burned hotter by this time, and Jesus knew this. Chapter 7, verse 1 tells us, that for a while he purposely stayed up in the northern province of Galilee to avoid a confrontation with the Jewish leaders until the time was right. Well, here in verses 14 through 36, the time is right. Notice verse 10. It says in verse 10, But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. As I mentioned, this was the great Feast of Tabernacles held each year in the fall from October 15th through the 22nd. The city of Jerusalem was bulging at the seams with Jews who had traveled to this festival. Jesus had only another six months before he would lay down his life for the sheep and allow himself to be murdered. The atmosphere around Jerusalem was tense because the people knew that Jesus would be coming to this feast. In fact, look at verse 12 of this chapter, not yet in our text, but still verse 12 tells us, and there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, he is good. And others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now notice, if you will, that the topic of discussion in verse 12 was the character of Jesus. Do you see that? He's good. No, no, no. He's a deceiver. But as we move into verses 14 and following, the topic of discussion centers not around the character of Jesus, but the doctrine of Jesus. Look at verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple again and taught. The first three days of the celebration passed quietly, and then Jesus decided it was time to step forward. So he entered the temple and he began teaching. Now, there's nothing all that unusual about that. This was common practice for the rabbis to do this. There's nothing unusual about what Jesus does here, but there is something very unusual about what he says here. Verse 15, 
And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Remember that when John uses the term the Jews in his gospel, he is referring specifically to the Jewish leaders who opposed Jesus. It is this group that is so amazed at Jesus' teaching because they knew, they knew without any doubt, that he had never attended any of their rabbinical schools. They knew that he had never received his master's degree or his doctorate from one of their schools. So they wonder how he can know so much. And in the next verse, he tells them. Verse 16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. By this statement, Jesus was implying, that's why my teaching is so different than yours. You see, the Jews figured there were two routes of learning. You could either be self-taught, and they recognized that as a valid route of learning, or you could attend the rabbinic schools. But Jesus gave them a third option that only applied in his case. His doctrine was straight from the Father. Throughout John's gospel, Jesus made it clear that his authority came from the Father. His teaching came from the Father. Look at chapter 8, the very next chapter, verse 26. Jesus says, I have many things to say and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. Again, Jesus says, I got my doctrine from the Father. Look at verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. Look at verse 38, same chapter. Verse 38, I speak what I have seen with my Father, and you do what you have seen with your Father. Over and over again, Jesus says this. He affirms the same thing in chapter 12. Look at chapter 12, verse 49. 1249, he says, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. And in chapter 14, he reminds his men of this fact. Chapter 14, verse 10, he says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Over and over again, Jesus made it clear that his doctrine came straight from the Father. And that's what he says back in chapter 7. Go back to our text there in chapter 7. So this statement here in chapter 7 is just another of many statements where Jesus made it clear he was speaking what the Father wanted him to speak. And that's what he says to his antagonists here in verse 16. The implication of his statement here is this. If you want to argue, and of course they did want to argue with Jesus, if you want to argue, then argue with the Father because I'm just telling you what he wants me to tell you. Some people would call that a cop-out, but in reality, it's the most authoritative way to speak. I find myself reverting back to this approach at times when people will say 
things to me like, well, what makes you think you have the right to confront people about their sin? Or a, a question I was recently asked uh, in our board meeting, well, what if this question comes up about, sadly, the number of times we've had to make announcements from the pulpit? You know, w- what do you say to that kind of thing? And my response is just simply this. If you want to argue, then argue with God because we're just doing what He says. We're just telling you what He says. That's similar to what Jesus is saying here in verse 16, but he's saying even more. He's not just claiming, notice, he's not just claiming to base his teaching on what God said. He is claiming to have been taught directly by God. Now that's an astounding claim. So in the next verse, Jesus gives a test to prove the validity of his claims. Verse 17, he says, If anyone wills to do his will, that is, anyone wants to do the Father's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Beloved, I believe this is one of the greatest promises in all the Bible. I don't know if I've ever seen it listed, and you know, you've seen those little books, some of the great promises of the Bible, and those are helpful. They pull together promises from all over. I don't think I've ever seen this one, and I believe this is one of the greatest If anyone wholeheartedly purposes to do the will of God, then God will make the truth known to that person. As I was studying this verse, I couldn't help but think of some of the testimonies we've heard in our baptismal services. There have been testimonies of individuals who have sought the truth diligently, sincerely, and wholeheartedly. And maybe they were in a cult or maybe a false religion. And God has met them at that point to confirm the truth in their hearts and minds. And God will always meet individuals like that who genuinely desire to do his will. Frankly, that's why it's hard for me to be understanding of most of the people who are in false religious. Now, I say most because I realize that there could be some who are in transition. They're confused, they're caught, etc. So I don't want to make a blanket statement, but it's hard to be understanding of most of the people who are in false religions. The indication of this verse is that most of those individuals don't really want to do the will of God. They're satisfied with their error. They're satisfied with their false God, their false religion. They don't really want to know the true God. They are comfortable to define God in their own terms so they can feel comfortable with Him. Most of them don't have honest, seeking hearts because Jesus says here, let me just put it in our our terminology, Jesus says here, God will always meet an honest, seeking heart who wants to do his will. In Deuteronomy 4.29, it says, you will find God if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. You see, the real issue that keeps people from following Jesus isn't that the truth is so hard to figure out. It's that the truth is so hard to submit to. That's the difficulty. That's why Jesus says here in verse 17, if anyone really wants to do the will of God, he will know. Now that's not to say that it's always immediate. You know, you've heard the testimonies as well as I have. Sometimes it's a tough path and people wrestle and they run to this supposed source of truth and that that, uh, supposed source of truth. But again, if the person really wants to know the true God and do the will of God, Jesus says he will know. Most people don't have a hard time discerning what is true. They have a hard time being willing to do what is true. 
This explains why so many people today don't understand the teachings of Jesus. It's because they don't really want to understand them because they don't really want to do the will of God. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan put it this way, when men are wholly, completely consecrated to the will of God and want to do that above everything else, then they find out that Christ's teaching is divine, that it is the teaching of God, end quote. But that's where the rub comes in. The sad reality is that most people don't want the will of God above everything else. And that was really the issue with the Jews in this passage. So Jesus places the issue where it belongs. If they had really wanted to know the truth about him, then they could have looked at his life to see. It wasn't that hard to figure out. In verse 18, Jesus says, He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Jesus, of course, speaking here in the third person, but referring to himself. Jesus contrasts himself with all the false messiahs and all the false teachers. The false messiahs seek to exalt self, but Jesus sought to exalt the Father. Jesus' life was totally selfless. His ministry was totally selfless. He always pleased the Father. He always obeyed the Father. In fact, back in chapter 5, back up just a few pages, chapter 5, verse 30, notice this statement. Chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. In chapter 6, he says the same thing again. Chapter 6, verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And then over in chapter 8, he says the same thing again. Chapter 8, verse 29, he says this, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always, look at that, I always do those things that please him. What a contrast Jesus was to these Jewish leaders. They always thought of self. It was all about self. They weren't interested in pleasing the Father if they had been, they could have seen Jesus' flawless life. And that's what he claimed at the end of verse 18 in chapter 7, our text. The very last phrase of chapter 7, verse 18, he says this of himself, and no unrighteousness is in him. Listen, beloved, you know very well that's either the statement of the flawless, perfect Son of God or an egomaniac. Those are your only two options to make such a claim. Over in chapter 8, verse 46, he again claims sinless perfection when he says, without hesitation, to the Jewish leaders who are arguing with him, which of you convicts me of sin? Is that incredible or what? Which of you can point out any sin in my life? <laughs> who in this room, who of us could say such a thing? None of us. It wouldn't take long at all to point out sin in our lives. But Jesus could say, which of you convicts me of sin? If the Jewish leaders had really wanted to be pleasing to the Father, they could have seen the flawless character of Jesus. But they weren't really interested in pleasing the Father. In fact, Jesus tells them here in chapter 7, they didn't even keep the law of Moses. Verse 19, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now that was an indictment. The Jews prided themselves 
as those who kept the law of Moses. But Jesus comes along here and says, you don't keep the law of Moses. And just in case they tried to argue with him about this, he gives them an example of where they weren't keeping the law, the law of Moses to prove that they didn't keep it. They were trying to kill him. Even though the law specifically said, you shall not commit murder. So Jesus unmasked their hatred, and at the same time, he unmasked their hypocrisy. But some of the people standing by took issue with this assertion of Jesus. Verse 20, the people answered and said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. We know this is a larger group than just the Jewish leaders. We know that by John's title, the people, as opposed to his title, the Jews. So one of two things is happening here. Either these, this broader category that went beyond the Jewish leaders, maybe they were friends or family members or whoever, we don't know. Either the people didn't know about the plan of the leaders to kill Jesus, or they did know it and they were just denying it. But either way, you, you can see their hatred of Jesus. They despised him so much that they had the audacity to call him demon-possessed. And this isn't the only place. You see this same accusation a couple more times in chapter 8 and chapter 10. At this point, they were so angry with Jesus that they were grasping for anything to call him, any name to call him, so they called him demon-possessed. Why were they so angry? Jesus tells us in the next verse, verse 21, Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marveled. The work he's referring to here is his healing of the paralyzed man on the Sabbath day back in John 5. Think about that. They're still mad about that. Of course, that's the way legalistic people are. They never forget when you violate their legalism. They never forget when you violate their legalistic standards. They fume with anger, and that's what has happened here. Verse 22 Jesus says, Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. In other words, it predated Moses. It's the sign of the covenant God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It comes all the way back from the fathers of the nation. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? You see the way Jesus was reasoning here? He is saying this, performing circumcision on a baby male child doesn't violate the Sabbath. God said do that on the eighth day, and if the eighth day happened to fall on Saturday Sabbath, they circumcised the little guy. Didn't matter. And he says, circumcising a little guy on the, on the Sabbath doesn't violate the Sabbath, so how can you think that my healing of a man's entire body breaks the Sabbath? It makes no sense. But they were too blinded by their legalism to see this. That's the way legalism is. I, I know of nothing that blinds the eyes of people the way legalism can. So Jesus calls for them to wake up and to see that their opinions of him are slanted, distorted, off base. Verse 24, he says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In other words, your evaluation of me is all wrong. Your evaluation of my deeds is all wrong. It's superficial. It's not objective. And in verse 25, John tells us, now some of them from Jerusalem said, 
Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. This is an interesting dialogue or sort of self-talk that John lets us in on. Don't be mistaken to think that they're confused about Jesus. It could read that way. That's not really their problem. Their problem isn't lack of evidence. Their problem wasn't lack of information. Their problem is that they don't want to believe Jesus is who he claimed to be. This is a case of willful confusion. And Jesus makes that clear in the next verse. In verse 28, Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. The way verse 28 starts out indicates that Jesus spoke these words with great emotion and intensity. Jesus cried out. He said this passionately, loudly. And what he basically says here is this. Don't try to act as if you're confused about me. You you can maybe pull that off with one another, but I know that's not the case. You know who I am because you know that I'm speaking the truth, but you're not willing to submit to me. So you're trying to hide behind the guise of confusion. Your problem isn't misunderstanding. Your problem is that you really don't want to know God. What a remark. Again, Jesus unmasks them on the spot. He tells them here that they don't know God, but he does. And if that isn't strong enough, he goes on to say, and he sent me. That's another claim of deity. If the Father sent Jesus, that means Jesus' origin is heavenly and he's divine. It's another claim of deity. Jesus wasn't just born into the world like any other man. He was sent by the Father. He was in existence before he was even born in time. They knew this is what Jesus was saying. And it made them red hot. He's he's unmasked them. They're they're trying to say, well, we don't really know what to make of this man. We're just not sure. And Jesus says, that's not the case at all. You know who I am. Don't play that game. You know who I am. You know where I'm from. You know it's true. But you're hiding behind that. What was their response? Verse 30, therefore, they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. They wanted to kill him. I mean, he's just stripped them bare. He's exposed them. And they were furious. So they wanted to kill him. But John says no one laid a hand on him because the Father's hand was covering him. We saw this last week in the previous text. There's no way the Father's divine timetable could be thwarted. No way. Jesus was going to die at Passover exactly according to the Father's plan. He wasn't going to die sooner. There was still more work to be done. There were still others that needed to, that Jesus needed to reach, and some of them were present at this very feast, which is why Jesus came. Verse 31, and many of the people believed in him 
and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? That's a great verse, isn't it? Look at what it says. In spite of the vast opposition, the evidence was overwhelming for some of the people present that day. They realized that Jesus' miracles built a strong case for his claims, and they believed in him. And this made the Jewish leaders white hot. Verse 32 tells us the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. When some of the people started believing in Jesus, believing what Jesus was saying, considering him to be the Messiah, that was the last straw for these Jewish leaders. They decided to make their move. But it wasn't going to work because Jesus wasn't ready to give himself in death just yet. Verse 33, Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. I don't know if this is supposed to be humorous, but that statement strikes me as funny. Let me explain why. Here are the officers, here are these officers coming to apprehend Jesus so they can kill him. And it sounds to me like he is saying, I think I'll stay on earth a little longer and then I'll go to the Father. In other words, you're not in control. I am. You think you can come and arrest me and kill me. It's not going to happen. You get the impression that this is just a casual reply by Jesus to those who are attempting to take his life to set the record straight that they, they aren't going to be able to pull it off. They're trying to kill him, but he simply says, I don't think I'll die yet. I'll hang around another six months, and then I'll go to my father. So this verse seems to have a, almost a humorous twist to it. But there's a sad part to it as well, and that's verse 34. Jesus says, you know, I'm going to go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And here it is. And where I am, you cannot come. You see, Jesus wasn't really the one who was in trouble on this occasion. The ones who were rejecting him were the ones who were in trouble. The ones who were playing the game of trying to act like they were confused, they were the ones in trouble. The chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, officers, they were the ones in trouble. So he warns them that they only have a short time remaining to hear from him personally, and then he'll be gone. Martin Luther once said of this verse, two brief sentences, but they are powerful, profound. Here's what Luther said. These are terrible words. I do not like to read them. I mean, to hear Jesus say, you're going to seek me, and you're not going to find me then. And where I am, you can't come. You can't come because you won't come. You can't come like you are, and you won't change. But this warning of Jesus doesn't penetrate their hearts. This, this reminds me of the words of Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. That's what Jesus was basically saying here. You've got a chance now. If you'll listen, here's your opportunity. But this warning of Jesus seems to just be like water off a duck's back. They, they don't care. They're fixed. They're resolved in their decision against him. 
verse 35, then the Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion, the diaspora among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? What a sad ending to this conversation. It's sad not because they didn't understand. It's sad because, as Jesus has made it clear through here, they really didn't want to understand. It's sad because they refused to understand. Beloved, this is a, this is a classic case of willful ignorance. Willful ignorance. That's different than, I don't know if this is a valid term, but innocent ignorance. You know, people that just really don't know, maybe are confused. This is not that. This is willful ignorance. It's like many people today, who I'm sure this has happened with you if you've tried to talk with family, friends, people about the Lord. It's like many today who try to throw up controversial issues about the Lord and the Bible as a smokescreen to hide their willful rejection of Jesus. This happens all the time when you try to talk to people about the Lord. They will, they'll hide behind issues like creation and evolution. Well, you can't believe the Bible because, you know, it talks about creation in six days, and we know it's billions of years. Or they hide behind the issue of the goodness of God and evil in the world, the lost condition of the heathen. How could you really believe the Bible? Because all these people have never heard, and you're saying they're going to hell. Now, granted, please hear this. Occasionally, there are some people who really want to work through issues like that. I don't want to paint with a broad brush. Sometimes there are people, these are these are genuine sort of barriers that they, they, they want to wrestle through. They're not just playing games like the people in this passage using excuses. They really want to. But many times, many times, people will use those kinds of, uh, of things as an excuse for rejecting Jesus' claims over their lives. It's just something they throw up. It's sort of like the, the classic one. I'm sure you've heard it. Well, the Bible is full of contradictions. Oh, really? Show me a couple. And I'll, I'll see if there's an answer. If I don't have it, I'll find an answer. That's all you have to do, by the way, to just challenge people who say that. Oh, the Bible is full of contradictions and errors and mistakes. Don't, don't hesitate to say, I, I'd appreciate if you show me some of them. And I'll come back to you with an answer. It's a good practice. Give you some homework if, if they really have some. But 99 times out of 100, they won't have any because it's just an excuse. They don't know where there are any supposed contradictions in the Bible. They don't know where there are any supposed errors in the Bible, but they've just heard that, or maybe they've just sort of come up with it on their own. It's a nice smokescreen just to keep people at a distance. That's what was going on here. That's why Jesus, verse 28 says, cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, you both know me and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Jesus spoke that with so much emotion and passion because he knew the game they were playing. He knew the, the way they were hiding behind it. And this still happens today. This still goes on today. People will feign confusion, feign supposed intellectual barriers to the gospel. Again, sometimes 
don't, be careful, don't paint with a broad brush and assume everyone's like that. But so often people do that just as an excuse for rejecting Jesus' claims over their lives. I hope you're not like that. Maybe you, maybe you come just because you think, ah, oh, I don't know. I just want to hear what the guy has to say and I'm not sure I believe any of this stuff. And you're, maybe you're playing the same kind of game that these people are playing. That's the most dangerous thing you could possibly do. There comes a time when it's too late. To quote Isaiah 55, 6 again, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Remember Jesus said, You're going to seek me and not find me. Those are scary words. Let's bow together as we close. As we close our time in the Word, just encourage you to think about this conversation, this argument, this dialogue that went on between Jesus and the Jewish leaders of his day and some of the people of his day. Obviously, this wasn't recorded for us in Scripture just to muse at as history. We are to learn from this. We are to learn how maybe how people operate, if you will, or common smokescreen or defense mechanisms that people use. We're to learn maybe tendencies in our own hearts. We look in the mirror and say, Lord, am I ever like this? That I sort of want to pretend that I'm confused when I'm not really confused. I just don't want to do what you want me to do. There are so many things that the Lord would want us to take from any time we're exposed to the Word. So don't, don't just close up your Bible and say, oh, sort of interesting history lesson to, to watch Jesus interact with these people of His day. But, but I encourage you to think applicationally. Think about what you can take from this for your own life, not only from your own life, but for your own ministry to other people. If you are here and you are playing this kind of game with the Lord where you're saying, well, I just can't be convinced intellectually, but you know that's not the issue. You know the issue is volitional. You know it's just that you don't want to yield and give in. I, I, I just have to warn you, that's a, a dangerous game to play. The time will come when it's too late. It's too late. So if you've never done so, yield to Christ. Let go and surrender to Him. And as I said earlier, for your, for your own life as a believer, if, if you are a believer and one who knows and loves Christ and, and you want to be used by Him, don't hesitate to, to dialogue with people. Don't think they're going to ask you a question you can't answer. Don't be afraid of that. If they do, just say, I don't know the answer, I, but I'll get back to you on that. Don't he- hesitate to engage people. Don't be afraid that they're going to come up with 15 contradictions in the Bible. It's just not there. Or 20 supposed errors. That's just a common way to stiff arm the gospel and stiff arm the Lord, stiff arm people the Lord's representatives. So learn from this, this, this story, this occasion, for that for our own lives and our own ministry. As I said, there are just a multiple, a number of things that we can learn and glean from this. Think applicationally as you're exposed to God's Word. So Father, we thank You for the opportunity to gaze upon Jesus, to, to watch Him operate, to see Him interact, and especially in this this type of situation, which, it's, which is almost a little bit uncomfortable for us. We, we don't think of Jesus in an argument very often. 
in this type of adversarial interchange, but that's exactly what went on on this occasion. And to see how Jesus felt so strongly about it that he would cry out as he taught in the temple and and say, you both know me and you know where I'm from. How he he called them on the carpet and, and unmasked them to show them that the real issue wasn't confusion, though they were trying to hide behind that. The real issue was volitional. They just didn't want to embrace him. They didn't want to receive him. They didn't want to believe in him. So as we think about the Lord Jesus and the way he worked and operated, again, Father, we ask that your spirit would give us insight, just practical insight into what we can learn from this passage for our own lives, our own ministries, in speaking to our own hearts. We pray this together in the matchless name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen.